Hello, everybody. Thank you once again for tuning into the Music That Made Us podcast. This week's album is going to be by Pearl Jam, their first album, 10. Uh, ben Davis has some shout outs before we begin, though, so I'm going to let him do that. I'd like to thank uh, Scott Bowen, who lives here in Winston Salem. He listens every week, and uh, that means a lot to us. He always uh, sends me notes. Uh, via email or text, and uh, I really appreciate that. And then uh, there's a Captain Anthony way down in Miami. He listens every week and lets me know, and that that's that's a lot from somebody down in Miami. And this week we had a new listener, all the way from Russia. That was really cool to see. That's very cool. And um, I believe that's 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 new business. We'll take it. Thank you for tuning in. So this week's album, Pearl Jam 10, um, was released in uh, 1991, uh, August the 27th, and was recorded in what I have here in basically under a month, from April the 27th, March 27th, excuse me, March 27th to April 26th. Yes, sir. I forgot how to... Uh, Read a calendar there momentarily, everybody. It happens. It's happened. It's been a rough go. <laughs> this is their debut album with uh, Epic Records. And what a debut album it was. Yes. This is a diamond-selling album. Yes. That means it went over 10 million copies. Most people's first album, if it goes gold, they're... Ecstatic. They're drinking uh, Dom and yeah. having a good time. I have a feeling, though, that uh, the guys of Pearl Jam, when they realized that they went gold, they probably maybe had a Pat's Blue Ribbon. <laughs> uh, yeah, they actually uh, were known for saying that the album was getting too big and they didn't like it. Yeah, yeah, I did read that. This uh, album was recorded... In a studio that is very famous up in uh, Seattle, Washington, London Bridge Studio. Kind of a strange name, in my opinion, uh, to be up in uh, Seattle. It was built in 1985 and really came, became very famous there in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. It was the home to several albums that led to Seattle becoming basically the the mecca of music there uh, for our generation there in the the early 1990s. But before anyone starts thanking it or even asks it out loud, Nirvana did not use this studio at all and and, uh, didn't make an album there. But basically every other big alternative grunge band of the time period did make at least one album there. I'm not going to list the bands because there are too many to name. Too many to name. But if you like, hey, did that band make an album? They made an album there. And uh, it was probably their highest selling album. Uh, two brothers owned this uh, studio. One was the owner and did the business, and the other guy managed to finagle his way into becoming a producer there. His name was Rick Parashar, I believe. Very, very prolific producer during his time. It is surprising to me, though, that before he did this album, he had only managed to do like 
one other album, from what I gathered? Um, pretty much, yes. And he headed this production of Ten along with the group. Um, oh, excuse me, this was his third album as producer, I'm sorry. Um, I don't know that I would have gone along with that if I were the band. Um, well, he had worked with Temple of the Dog. Um, who kind of came out around the exact same time as Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. So uh, you had the uh, lead singer um, from Soundgarden uh, and the drummer who knew some of the members. So uh, and then Vetter singing on it. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was somebody that they kind of knew. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, the the drummer and the singer. and Well, let's, let's, before we dig too much deeper, let's, let's talk about the... We talk about family trees here in America. You can't help but see the commercials for whatever they're called these days, the spit in the tube and send it in. Let's talk about the band family tree for this album. Sure. It starts off, number one and number two are Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament. Ament is the way I've always said it, Okay, That's the rhythm guitarist and the bassist. They were in Green River and then went over to Mother Love Bone. Uh, not everybody knows that band, but that was a great band. It was. They had some uh, off that debut album, Apple. It was That was a great album. Now, from my understanding, Stone recruited the lead guitarist... Um, I don't have his first name written down here. McCready. Yeah, McCready. What is his first name? Is it... Uh, Mike Mike. McCready. Mike, that's correct. Okay. Now, how did they get Eddie Vedder? Um, Well, uh, you know, Mother Lovebone dissolved because of the vocalist Andrew Wood dying of a drug overdose. Okay. And that actually happened before the debut of Apple. So when Apple came out, he had already passed away. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, Gossard and Ament had kind of gone their different ways after the loss. Um, and, uh, Gossard started practicing with McCready, um, after a period of time who actually encouraged him to reconnect with Ament. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. So, so they were writing songs, um, and then, uh, they got together with a Soundgarden drummer at the time. Uh, Cameron and the Shadow drummer from uh, a previous band that they had known uh, in Friel, and they produced uh, a demo tape called Stone Gosser Demos 91. And they were shopping it around looking for a drummer and a singer. So uh, eventually, um, the former drummer. Uh, of uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Jack Irons. Jack Irons uh, actually gave a copy to Vetter, who was living in San Diego at the time. <clears throat> so the story goes that Vetter uh, listened to the album, went surfing, and came back, and then ended up writing the lyrics to uh, three songs that would eventually come off of the Stone Gossard demos and then go on to the 10 album. So when uh, Vetter had written the lyrics, sent the demo back, they actually flew him up to um, Seattle 
where they immediately, uh, you know, became, uh, you know, pretty in tune with each other because the first week that they got together, they ended up writing 11 songs. Yes. Um, so, um, in uh, 1990, in the month of October, Vetter and then uh, the the eventual drummer, uh, Krusen, uh, like I said, they were practicing, wrote 11 songs, and then that's uh, when they went on to get signed by Epic. Okay. Now, Krusen, who drummed for this entire album, and I, he did a fantastic job. Agreed. This has great drums on this entire album. After the album, he said he had to leave for rehab because he was basically kind of a broken man and spent his entire the entire album in a bottle. Yes, he said he was a fairly bad alcoholic and uh, had was just in a bad place in his head. But he said it was it was a fantastic experience getting to at least record the album. And so he left, and then um, Matt Chamberlain came in. But he didn't stay for long. He only played uh, for them for, on about 10, 10 live shows. And then he uh, apparently thought he had a better gig and left for the uh, Saturday Night Live band. Yeah. Which, you know what? I don't. If, I, I can't tell you which I think is a better job. That's a pretty cushy job. At, at the time, the Saturday Night Live band would be, let's say, akin to, like, let's say, Jimmy Kimmel's Having the Roots on. Back then, those were known musicians. Yeah, we're talking 1992. Right. That's probably a, a good heyday for SNL. Mm-hmm. They're going into a pretty good stead of uh, being top of the top of the show. So he brings in uh, Dave. Um, this is quite the name. You got double B's and double Z's in your name. Right. A, a bruise, bruisey. Yeah. And then he comes in and he stays with them for uh, a few years. Sure. And that's that's the band for ten. So, and what a band it was. Yep, and don't forget the uh, the uh, credit to the producer, Rick oh, Parshar, who gets right. credit for uh, Pepper Shaker and um, Fire Extinguisher. And he also played piano. Mm-hmm. And he actually played drums too. Uh, on Black and Jeremy. So, he was a talented man. He was that. He's he he's passed away now. Yes, he died in two thousand fourteen. So let's not forget their original name. Yeah, Mookie Blaylock. For everybody out there who does not know who Mookie Blaylock is, he was number ten for the Atlanta Hawks during this time period. Uh, his number is actually retired for uh, the University of Oklahoma. He was a not a bad point guard. He was a Push and pass point guard. He was uh, he was not a bad player. Nope. Made it to the All Stars. He uh, leads the Atlanta Hawks, I do believe, in three point percentage. Well, now we know where the name Ten came from. Exactly. Uh, I always liked Mookie. Not necessarily for his play, but man, what a name! Hey, <laughs> it's hard to beat that name. But they had to change the name Pearl Jam because uh, he had signed a deal with Nike, and they were afraid of infringement rights. Isn't Nike from up in that? Pacific Northwest area, too? Uh, I think they may be, yeah. Yeah, that's, so, that's interesting. Uh, they all... signed him, so they had to name, change yeah. the name of the band. But they mm. did name the album after him. So. They did, yes. I wonder if they've ever met old Mookie. Um, 
you know, you said that Eddie went out and surfing and wrote the songs. Yes. Well, what he the songs he wrote were three songs, and it was alive, once, and footsteps were the three that he says that he wrote on his little surfing escapade when he heard right. those. The original Stone Gossard demo names were Dollar Short and Egyptian Crave. Mm-hmm. And these three songs make up a sort of like a, a, a mini rock opera mm-hmm. within the album, even though they're not back-to-back songs. They're placed in different areas throughout the album, and they're not even in an order. So unless you were to know this, you would not really understand that they were playing off of each other. He says that they, the mini opera, and they are titled Mama Son or Mama Son. Right, yeah. Um, it's 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 jacked up. What it's about. It <laughs> it, it is it is rough. Yeah, we're not going to go into it, but just let's well, let's just say the word Oedipus and we'll leave it at that. Well, reverse Oedipal complex. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that he gets into into this cuz I do want to really discuss one of these songs in depth. I mean, because, well, we both had a rough week here uh, at The Music That Made Us with our personal lives, and some of these songs go into a few of these things. These songs sound upbeat and happy, but, <laughs> but man, if you read the lyrics, it's a totally different story. Yes. We're talking murder, suicide, incest, patricide, realization of your dead parents, Going to jail, being executed, homelessness, psych institutions? Oh, yeah. I mean, at the beginning of this podcast, I was going to ask you, is this album grunge or is it the beginning of the alternative rock sound? I think it depends on who you ask. Exactly. Uh, um, Because uh, Kurt Cobain himself... uh, called Pearl Jam out when they got uh, to be big, called them sellouts, and told them that they weren't a true alternative band because of their use of the guitar the way that they did. So um, so that, I mean, that's a guy that was in alternative music making a uh, declarative statement of, you know, we're not quite in the same genre. You know, I'm going to go and say that Nirvana for sure were a grunge band. Sure. Nevermind might have put them into the grunge alternative sound especially with uh smells like teen spirit sure now i'm gonna say this album is loud yes a lot of grunge songs generally you you don't think of as loud in this way because these are like guitar anthem loud songs yes a lot of uh guitar work a lot of solos a lot of uh a lot of experimenting done by the by uh, the lead guitarist. Yeah, um, and also with grunge, a lot of the grunge people find their roots from like the punk scene. Yes, very much so. These guys, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really a big Pearl Jam fan, but after reading a little bit about them, I'm really digging what they, who, they're, uh, who, who they draw from. They draw oh. from Kiss, The Doors. Yeah. I'm like... Led Zeppelin. I'm like, hey man, Stevie Ray Vaughan. You're you're pulling from my area here. 
These are people I was listening to, you know. But people yep. I grew up were listening to Pearl Jam at the time I was listening to, you know, Kiss and Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yep. That's why I wasn't really digging Pearl Jam. I was listening to all that simultaneously. Yeah. Um, yes. Like I said, it's loud a different way. I would say that their sound was alternative, but their lyrics were 100% grunge. I can say that, yeah. Yeah. I think I have to agree with you on that one. It's they they were trying to walk a fine line. Well, they were doing their own thing. Yeah, um, yeah, that's for you sure. Know, and they never had a problem with uh, telling people, you know, that they they weren't into being super famous. They just wanted to sing, you know, the best music they could. They were far different than the other, I guess, other three big. Four of that era. Agreed. Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Alice in Chains. Yes, their song was much different than theirs. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I, I'm a much larger Soundgarden fan than I am Pearl Jam, and I know more about Alice in Chains than I do Pearl Jam and Nirvana. I know the least about Pearl Jam. Fair enough. I don't know Pearl Jam's other albums, kind of like you were with Oasis. I, I sure. don't really know much about these guys. So I don't know how their sound grew. Um, yeah, they became less and less alternative, in, in my opinion. More mm-hmm. more of a rock band. Okay. Because Soundgarden kind of, their, their sound didn't really grow much until he, Cornell went solo and then to Audio Slave. It was totally, a little, it was a little different, in my I opinion. I thought um, Spoon Man. I love Spoon Man, that's a yeah, great song. That, that uh, Black Hole Sun. So that, uh, you know, Bad Motor Finger and uh, that album, which name escapes me right now, um, you know, those have two different sounds. So Yes, you're right, they do. They do totally. I always thought that, uh, though, that Black Hole Sun was more grunge, in my opinion, than the other one. But Agreed. Yeah. You know, but when you got Jesus Christ pose and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the other songs on that first album, they're, they're pretty darn heavy. They are, yeah. Well, back to these guys. Back, back to Pearl Jam. Um, the name Pearl Jam. Yes. Have you heard the old wives tell about how they came up with Pearl Jam? Um, no. I remember in high school hearing what Pearl Jam was. I uh, did not hear the story. I didn't do it, at least not in my research. I didn't um, read well, it. No, I had heard this. Uh, my best friend growing up, his name was Charles, and we were friends from uh, kindergarten all the way through our adulthood, he uh, he died back in uh, I guess about 2014 of, uh, of a drug overdose, I believe. And he um, was a huge Pearl Jam fan, and he had two older brothers. And I believe it was his older brother that had found this story out. And if you read about Pearl Jam, you you hear it. It's the that the name comes from um, Eddie's grandmother, who was named Pearl. And she was of Native American ancestry. And she made jam laced with peyote. Uh-huh, okay. And that's where the name Pearl and the jam came from. Well, later on down the road some years, uh, Eddie said that that was just a total fallacy, that he just made it all up to, you know, to get the, the fans going. For an interesting story. Yes. Water cooler talk. The name actually comes from the fact that I believe it was Ahmet decided upon the name Pearl. Um, 
and the jam part comes after came after they attended a Neil Young concert. And uh, old Neil decides pretty much in all of his songs at a concert that he uh, some first he just likes to extend his songs. Sure. For like an additional five to ten minutes, every song is going long as what most people refer to as a jam session. Yep. Thank and you. that's where the jam came from. Okay. So, Pearl Jam comes from that. It is. It's not sexy and it's not cool. No, but that's how they got it. Hey, uh, it got to come from someplace. So. Yep. Oh, and we were talking about uh, you know Kiss and uh, Steve Ray Vaughan and stuff. McCready says he stole <laughs> even even flow in black from Steve Ray Vaughan. The solos in there. Um, yeah, the even flow, uh, you, you know, absolutely. And then alive, <clears throat> uh, the, uh, the debut single, um, the solo is considered one of the best. If you look it up. Well, he says uh, he stole that directly from Ace Freely. But he stole it. He said he copied Ace Freely from the, the song She. she. So and who, who stole from, uh, I think uh, it was five to one from the doors. Yep. It sure was. So, uh. Yes, I mean, uh, even off of uh, Even Flow, he said that that solo was his poor attempt at a Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, solo himself. He even admitted <laughs> that it was just yeah. kind of subpar. So, Well, before we you know, talk singles and the rest of the songs, I want to talk about number four, Why Go. Mm-hmm. That's the song that's about uh, psychiatric institutions. From my perspective on it, it's talking about why even go to one. Did you gather that? Um, either that or why go home. Um, you know, because you know, that's the, the, the refrain. It's yeah, why go home, why go home. I, I'm, I read the lyrics and I, I can't determine if it's why go home from one or even I, why go to one. I kind of took it as the latter. Um, just some of the lyrics kind of led me to believe that you know, he's in, he's in this place uh, and he knows he's not well. And so what's the point of, of, of going home um, and going back to the same things that put him there in the first place? But I could have read that. I could have read That's your that take wrong. on it. Yeah. Everybody has their own take. My take is I don't believe that they're giving a lot of faith into the psychiatric care is what I was gathering. Um, fair enough. Yeah, I can see that. And that you know, when people say stuff like that, it, it it bothers me greatly. How come? I have spent a lot of my most of my adulthood in some sort of psychiatric care. I have had a shrink for a very long time. And I, I mean, mental health is a stigma in this country. Very much so. And I don't understand why. Um, I think part of it is uh, an old patriarchal, patriarchal. I don't. Yeah, I'm not gonna say that correct. Uh, but you know what word I'm trying to say? I do. Uh, idea of that men are silent and strong, and letting any emotion out is a bad thing. So, uh, and that's still very pervasive in our society today. We're, you know, we're starting to get better at saying that men need to express themselves as well. Um, but for the most part, uh, it is be the strong guy. And go to work and provide and protect. And that is what your job is as a man. In today's society, that's that's almost frowned upon. It is. Uh, one of my favorite memes has uh, Conor McGregor in it. You, whatever your opinion of him is. I don't even know if he said it, but it's him. 
uh, and it's called The Reality of Being a Man. And it just says two things. Nobody cares. Work harder. So yeah. if that doesn't tell you uh, the mind frame, then nothing else will. You're right. Nobody cares how you feel. Work harder. This ar- album right here basically expresses that sentiment. And it is a damn shame we have come no further than that. I, I agree. And uh, you are right. The, the, the lyrics to these are far superior to uh, some of the more mainstream uh, stuff that's coming out now that really just doesn't talk about anything. Um, there's some deep stuff going on in these songs. Uh, some people got it and some people didn't. So uh, we'll get into that when we get to the song parts because there's some like interesting stories about each song. You can't, in today's society, you, as a man, if you talk to a almost say a sheepish a sheepish sheepish excuse me i'm having a hard time speaking too uh female in your normal tone it can be taken um mean a- aggressive oh yeah and then that just puts you in uh a, a boat you don't want to be in no. in so many ways and this has happened to me and it, it i don't understand why and I, I don't know how to get out of these boats when it happens. Um, I don't think there is getting out of the boat. Um, if I'm going to be honest with you, I think it, you know, certain people read into what you say. Some people read into your intonation. Well, language is both. It's not one or the other. It's sort of like taking a meaning out of a text. You know, you can't read intonation into a text. So texts can be very easily... Uh, misunderstood, misinterpreted. So we're in the same boat here when it comes to speech. Uh, you know, because I say something in a certain way, I mean, I could have just stubbed my toe. I could have just lost my mom. I could have just won a million dollars. I could. I mean, there's there's a myriad of things that uh, people go through day by day that affect the way that uh, they speak to you. And at least uh, through my meditative studies, especially with Tai Chi, um, I have found that if you just realize that most people get their their uh, weight off of their chest by taking it out on others, then you'll stop reacting to it. Hmm. That's a very good point. But you know, in that song, basically, if you read what it goes into, you can read it into their their biggest song they've ever they've done, pretty much, Jeremy. It's what they are known for, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, by far. Which is, I don't... <laughs> Only single to go gold, so... It's like a, a bio, biography-type song of this kid named Jeremy Wade Dale, and then another kid that a uh, uh, veteran knew named Brian. He's kind of merged their two stories together. The Brian kid, since he didn't give a last name, it's kind of hard to dig up anything on him, but this Jeremy kid... Uh, damn, that's a sad story. Yeah, it is. Um, but it's probably, you know, it's bringing attention to it, so that's good. But it's probably going on in a bunch of households all over the world right now. Kid from a broken home. Mm-hmm. Um, but it uh, seemed to be a somewhat intelligent child who just didn't put it forward. 
Well, I mean, you know, they talk about he wasn't something that mommy would wear, you know, so obviously there was a new woman in the life. Dad probably was enamored. Son gets ignored for a certain amount of time, and then, you know, you know, you can read all about it online, but problems at school plus problems at home, no outlet for it, and you have a tragedy. And that's exactly what happened. And that it, the lyrics, basically, those lyrics are exactly this kid's story. And he ended up in this basic major depressive state and went to school and killed himself in front of the class. Yep, sure did. I mean, what, what, would, that, what would that do to, to a group of kids? I think, uh, you know, you ask any high school kid who's been through some type of tragedy like that. Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of them over the last 10 years. And, yeah, they, they talk to shrinks, too. That's, that's not something that you see and don't forget. What does that say for America that that's their gold U.S. single? Um, yeah, I mean, again, it was, it was, it was bringing attention to a tragedy. Um, it's not like they're glorifying it in any way. Um, but they were bringing attention and they were telling the story about the kid named Jeremy. So, um, it either says people connected with it and understood what he was trying to get across or, um, you know, it could be like most shallow people and they just really enjoyed the rhythm and singing. I think for most people that was probably that. Yeah, it, may, it might have been. Because um, I know a lot of people that know the song, but I don't know if they know the history. Because so. that's what happened with Alive. People were like, yeah, it's a great anthem and it was you know, it's pretty dark. Yeah, it's uh, it's not what they thought about. So, um, it is not at all. But, what they but I mean, about. a lot of songs though uh, have different meanings, and so. a lot of them have different meanings with like you know similes and metaphors. This is pretty straightforward. Oh yeah, there he's not mincing words. No, he does not. He doesn't do that in his songs. No, at least not his early ones. I don't know about his old ones. Uh, a little bit more poetic in the later albums. So there were four singles from this album. Mm-hmm. Five if you count black, which they did not release as a single, no. but the radio just decided it's such too good of a song and they just released it on their own. They did. And I, I totally agree with that. It was one of the better songs in my opinion. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a funny song about black where Eddie was on the beach uh, actually uh, surfing and he heard a group of kids uh, singing the song um, and asked them to stop. R- Oh, really? Yes, because uh, that song meant something to him, and the way they were playing it about it, it kind of ruined the way he viewed the song. How so, do they have any fans? Um, I, you know, because they're an awesome band with an awesome singer, but, uh, you know, in terms of their mainstream popularity that they wanted, it was minimal. You know, obviously they didn't take, they didn't mind taking the money from the uh, uh, Diamond album, but uh, they were not, definitely not about fame and, and glory. That was, that's one thing that at least was consistent in this first album through research. I had not read that story. That was, that's interesting. And that, you know, they refused to make a video for this song as well, I mm-hmm. heard, is one of the reasons it was not released. Right. Uh, well, after um, Jeremy, they... You know, that one garnered them so much attention that uh, I don't think they were particularly 
It's not that they weren't pleased, but uh, it just wasn't their thing. How old were they right about this time? Do you know? Um, I didn't read any birthdays in there, but I, I would I would wager a guess that if you're playing uh, in another band in the late 80s, and this one comes out in the mid-90s, I would say probably 20s. Mm. I don't it, think anyone had reached yeah. 30 by that It was point. made on the cheap, too. It was made for like... Was it like about $100,000? Well, most of it had been uh, pre-recorded and had different jam sessions. Yeah, and demos. And yeah. demos. So, uh, you know, that's why it only lasted that 30 some day, you know, thirty days mm-hmm. almost exactly. Well, Stone and Jeff, uh, the two guys that were in Mother Love Bone, said they did not want a repeat of what they had just done with Apple, which was a bloated production they thought where they spent i think i can't remember what it was it was somewhere between three and five hundred thousand dollars they said they spent on the Uh, production of that album which from some of the things we have done so far in this podcast is nothing oh yeah absolutely not yeah yeah we we had the million dollar (laughs) yeah the million dollar album just last week yes um yeah i mean they've and uh you know they've that's if you look at the you know in later years if you if you listen to the band members themselves, uh, most of them said if they could redo anything they'd go back and redo this album because they felt like it was overproduced. Yeah, they say they like Eddie Vedder says he can't listen to this album, but he yes, can listen to all the others. Out of all of them, this is the one he can't listen to. So and it's their most famous. That that has to say something. So well, let's talk a little bit about their accolades of this album. It received. Phenomenal reviews. Mm-hmm. Every basically everyone that reviews albums gave it four to five stars just throughout. Yes, it's not worth going through and naming who they were because it was basically everybody. Yeah, no, the list was quite long, so yes. I didn't write it down. It's a long and distinguished list of awards they got for this album, but here are a few. We already said that it was a diamond album. It's got 13 million sold in the U.S. way back when. Um, it went seven times platinum in Australia, was double platinum in the UK, seven times in Canada. That's uh, those are right there are three of the big countries you always look at because those are places that you always go and tour. Sure. Yeah, because Australia is always a big place to tour. I, I do know that. Yes, sir. Um, and the Billboard Top 200, it got to number two. It was held off by... Billy Ray. Yeah, Miley's dad. Yeah. Well, what is it? Some gave all. Some gave all, yes, sir. Well, Pearl Jam tried to, but they just couldn't quite give it. <laughs> yeah, I mean... You know. <laughs> Sorry, veterans, I know, but that was a bad joke. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, but it hit number two, so... Yeah, it just couldn't do it. It, it. it hit number two several times throughout the summer and the fall, I read. It would hit two, go down, come back. It just could not break it. Uh, it had a long run. It did. It was almost five years, 263 weeks. That's right. Uh, and it's uh, the 15th uh, charting album ever. One of the top 15 charting Ooh. albums ever in the United States. That is impressive. Mm-hmm. It is number 160. That is high on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest of All Time. Yes, sir. Um, and actually, to give you an idea of the longevity of the album, 
in 93 it was the eighth best-selling album in the u.s two afters it was released and it outselled its own second album hmm so 10 outsold versus yeah okay i'm trying to think but you know that may not be a lot of people who release those first big albums do that though um, sometimes, I mean, we've talked about some, uh, some people even on this podcast though, who's, they had a couple of albums out before they really had their big Yeah, they album. hit it big. That's right. Um, this is, uh, this is right here. This isn't the my next thing I have written down, but I do want to hit this so badly. I want to say this Rolling Stone ranked Pearl Jam number eight in their top 10 live acts of all time in like the late 2000s, early 2010s. Sure. This really rubbed me raw until I went through and actually looked at the list. I was sitting at my kitchen table where I do a lot of my research and I was cussing under my breath. Mm -hmm. Like, how can this be? They better have, you know, Kiss and Led Zeppelin and the Who. Well, okay, yeah, they were all on the list. Yeah, they were. Yeah, uh, but number one really surprised me. It was Bruce. Well, Bruce puts on a hell of a show. The Boss. Kiss was number 10. Again. Two below uh, Pearl Jam, which I do not believe is possible. Um, I believe it's, uh, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beer holder uh, in that case because... Pure showmanship. How how do you how do you outdo Kiss? I mean, with the makeup and the pyrotechnics and how they get the audience involved and I mean, just oh my gosh. So the only thing I could possibly think of is is just pure uh, musical talent and being able to re- reproduce a studio sound on stage every time. And Pearl Jam, I've had They're several younger. live albums. They're younger. Um, and they do, they, I mean, they sound, uh, not to compare them to uh, like Dave Matthews. He's a, he's a little bit of a bad example cause they sing totally different genres. But if you listen to Dave Matthews, uh, live, he sounds exactly like he does on the album. There are so. a lot of people who can do that, but then Rolling Stones are number two. The Stones do not sound the same as live. they do li- as they do on the record. And um, they haven't sounded the same as they do on the album since probably 1980. I was going to say, if they're on there at number two, it's because of what they did from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It wasn't, yeah, it, it wasn't anything It was in that. The Who? They were in the top five. Uh, again, the Rod, Now, I'm going to give it to Roger Daltrey. That man Woo. can carry a tune better yeah. than almost anybody. Yes, sir. Elton John should have been on the list. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, because, you know, if you've seen the movie, um, you know, he sold out places all over the place. And again, Queen made the list. I was upset, too. I was like, if Queen isn't on that list, uh, Rolling Stone, I'm going to go burn them. And, uh, you know, isolated tracks of, of, of the vocals alone are worth purchasing. Because uh, they, have, they have singled him out several times yeah. so that you can't hear anything else. It's, it's all you're hearing uh, is his vocals. And uh, the man, I mean, without the music in the background, he's pitch perfect. Man's a machine. The man was a machine. He was a machine. Yes. Losing him was, they always put out those things. You see them on Facebook and and Instagram. If you could bring back one guy to go to a concert, it's always him who I pick. Sure. You know, or they, here's here's a hundred bucks and these bands cost so much. Who would you pick? I'm always picking Queen. I just did one where I picked Queen, Sabbath, and Elton John for my concert. Hey, there you go, man. (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, that's somebody who was taken too soon. We Agreed. Will, we will definitely cover a Queen album at some point. Um, but yeah, that was an interesting list. Uh, the, Rolling Stone must have some serious respect for Pearl Jam, and I think uh, not having seen them live, I must be doing a disservice to myself by this point. Um, this album is one of the thousand and one to hear before you die. Yeah, I was going to say, it actually made that list. Uh, this, I did not even know there was a Grammy Hall of Fame. Yes. But they're in the 2021 class. Yes, they were nominated last year for this year's class. I didn't, I didn't, I'm like, what? What is that? Uh, in the spin top 90 albums of the 90s, this one is number 33. We have had several albums on this list. We keep having people on this list. Soon we're going to have this whole list. Yeah, we'll just have the whole list, and yeah. that way you'll know. We every, need to make our own list. Everything that uh, you missed during the 90s, we'll make sure we fill in the, the gaps. And we've had some on this list, too. The Spin 100 Greatest of All Time uh, from 85 to 05. This one was 93. Yeah, they're always in, you know, somebody's list someplace just because of uh, their, you know, Jeremy really put them on the map, and then some of the other songs kind of solidified them but uh jeremy was uh you know the song was nominated for best rock song and best hard rock performance at the 35th grammy awards which he did not win but the video um and anyone who grew up like me watching mtv when there were actually videos on mtv mm-hmm. uh, remembers this video so at the 1993 Video Music Awards, they actually won, uh, were nominated for five, but they won uh, Video of the Year, uh, Best Group Video, Best Metal Hard Rock Video, and Best Direction in a Video. So, oh, wow. To a, a, you know, and then again, at that time, MTV was so influential. and uh, yeah, Those were big things back those then. Were, that's a big deal uh, for them. And again, it put a lot of a spotlight on them that they weren't too happy about. Uh, now, these next two are very interesting things I didn't really know of and I don't and they're very argumentative in 2013 Rolling Stone's readers poll put them at number one for the 10 greatest debut albums of all time mm-hmm. uh, but that's the readers and you got to remember that's an audience thing you know it's a time thing if you go how back could that, this how could this be above appetite for destruction um, Appetite for Destruction, uh, in my opinion, you had to really be kind of a little bit of a metalhead to enjoy. Um, there are songs, and you know this, on Appetite for Destruction, which are uh, way more rowdy than what we got on the radio. That's very true. Um, some of their better ones, actually. I, some of their better ones. I will not disagree with that. But, uh, you know, uh, a lot of sexual innuendo... Yeah. A lot of direct sexual reference, actually. It doesn't even matter. Um, so where I feel like this one, like I said, whether people were listening to the lyrics and connecting with them or um, just connecting with the music itself, this one's, I think this one would appeal to a broader fan base. Okay. Okay. That was a very good argument. And Guitar World put this at number 15 on the 100 greatest guitar albums of all time. Yes, which the guitarist himself makes fun of himself for. Yeah. Um, I can come up with 15 better. I can come up with 20 better guitar albums off the top of my head. Uh, I probably it. could too. But again, uh, you know, the one good thing about it is, is McCready has been self-deprecating when it comes to some of the things that he did on this album. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, he said he said he had to imitate Stevie Ray Vaughan the best he could, and he did a poor job of it. <laughs> right, and you yeah. can hear the influence in certain songs, and you can hear the influence, like you said, of Ace Freely. You can hear the 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 older, the Led Zeppelin. Mm. You know, you can hear all these influences in what he's doing. Well, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so you can't go too wrong. Yeah, I mean, and I give it to Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They inducted every member. Yes. Which uh, is something that they don't always... They are so hypocritical. They didn't put all the members of KISS in. They didn't put all the members of... I don't think they put everybody in the Grateful Dead in. They put in almost everybody else, but not uh, all of them. The album that we discussed technically two albums ago, Metallica. Dave Mustang did not get That's in. That's right. Even though he had writing credits right. and musical credits on Kill em All. They don't, put the, they don't put everybody in. Mm-hmm. It's very weird how they do these things. Well, let's talk about a few questions here. All right. We... Uh, I don't have that many questions for this one, but I do have a few. Well, the good thing is is that this album has opened us up for a lot of discussion just about the album itself. So We had some real-world discussion. Real, you had to, because this, like you said, when we start going through these songs, um, faithful listeners, you will, if you haven't figured it out, uh, we're <laughs> you're going to find out how some of these songs are not as uh, happy, happy, joy, joy. As they might, <laughs> as they as they might sound from the guitar rift. I love that Red and Snippy reference. Ah, I got to get it in there. All right, obviously, number one song, best song. What is it? Okay, um, I am actually going to go with something that is not one of the singles. Um, I personally liked release. As huh. one of my uh, favorites, um, there is just something about it. It's a little bit slower, um, but uh, there's something about the vocals in that song uh, that are it's just fantastic. Um, Oceans has great vocals. Jeremy, um, great song, but just over overplayed for me. Just you know, I mean, I've just heard it so many times. Yeah. Um, Black is, an, you know, again, another little bit slower song. It has a lot to mean. But, yeah, I mean, Alive and Even Flow were two of the first songs I heard. Uh, so they have a special place in my heart. But I, I'm going to go, I'm just going to go a little bit off uh, the, you know, the beaten path here and say that Release is uh, my favorite. The Hidden Track. Uh, that is the song before the Hidden Track. Really? Yes. Uh, on the original release, which I have, uh, and it's even on my telephone still that way. Uh, release is about four minutes, and then about oh, yes, a, and, a little, mm-hmm. and then about a minute later, and I don't know why it's called Master Slave. I don't because I, of the beginning. There's the master part where he's just that. well, it's a it's a snippet. Yeah. Of it that's at the beginning, but the whole thing uh, is at the end of the. Uh, yeah. At this, and, and you know it's a kind of, it's, it's a cool little uh, uh, instrumental. It's yeah. little. I mean, you know, it's all played over just a bass line, but no frets. Just yeah, it's uh, fretless bass. Um, and uh, you know, hate to say it, it's probably good smoking music, uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, release is going to be uh, my favorite. I'm going to go with once. I suppose I like. Uh, it's a good way to start an album. Oh yeah, it's it, a it, hell of a way to start. I an album. like it. It's kind of heavy it's a good jamming song it is the first six songs in my opinion are all really great yes i would say after six it it, yes they're not 
Yeah, after six, to me, the album kind of dies. Um, I can see that. I can see that for the average listener who's not like a Pearl Jam uh, aficionado freak uh-huh. or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. O- I would actually include Oceans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it's uh, a single, and I'm listening to it. I'm like, why is this a single? Uh, Porch, Garden, Deep, and again, my favorite was Release. So uh, those four songs are. They get kind of overshadowed by uh, the first six. They're not bad or, songs. No, they're not throwaways like some albums have. They're they're definitely B sides. Yeah, they do have that sound. And to them. there are people that are fans that are going to be like, "I love these songs," like you are. But for people like me who just aren't big Pearl Jam, you know, in deep love with the band, who sure. know all their songs. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm like, okay, it's it's a song, and it's not that bad. But right. Yeah. But yeah, uh, probably Once, and then probably Black are my two favorites from this I can album. completely understand. Uh, I mean, that hit number three on the Billboard Mainstream Rock. So yeah, without, without a real release. Without a release, and yeah. Eddie Vedder calling in to make sure that they're not releasing it. Uh, <laughs> and telling people not to sing it on the beach. And Pete literally telling, like, what are you doing? Um, it's a hard. It's hard not to like this song. my song. Nah, 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 nah. I mean, he's you know he's got a very distinct <laughs> voice, but I'm gonna tell you what. Um, and that actually, if you listen to the song, uh, the guitarist has gone back and said some of the the riffs in between are very are 100 him trying to kind of make it a little bluesier with mm. a Stevie Ray Vaughan sound. If you had to pick a worse song. Um, I did not uh, go with the worst one, but I said um, Porch. I did not like the solo. I didn't think it was that great. I think the chorus was all right. The, va- the, the, the vocals were a lot faster. Um, I think Garden would be my least, you know, instead of saying the worst, I'll say Garden is my least favorite. And Garden is one of those songs that just absolutely gets lost in the the mix of the the other ones in my opinion yeah porch and garden I weren't I wasn't a big fan of either of those as well and um, they just uh, I don't know they just didn't do it for me yeah I mean there's just certain songs that are different um, you know uh, great chorus on porch a uh, little faster vocals but uh, like I said not the best solo and so I therefore not my one of my favorite songs even their titles are weird here I mean you got once and you know it's kind of the, you listen to the song, you're like, he's even mentioning the title in the song. Even Flow, that's not a bad title. Alive, that's a great title for a song. Sure. Black, I mean, that's kind of weird for a song title, but it fits. Jeremy, obviously, that works. And then you get to, you know, Porch. Who names a song Porch? And oh, Garden and Deep. I mean, okay, yeah. Right. Well, all of them. You know, are pretty much one name songs. Yeah, yeah. even flow. Uh, yeah, obviously, why two go so- and then I mean, why go? That's it. I mean that. I mean that. It, I don't remember porch garden and deep. Are those? Did he mention those in the song? Um. Yes. Uh. But but it's in a different reference. It's not as prominent as it is. Yeah. You know, Jeremy. Mm-hmm. You know, the J- Jeremy is repeated. Yeah, yeah most of these uh, things. Why are. go is the refrain. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still alive yep. is the refrain. Even flow uh-huh. is the refrain. You know, once is the refrain. Yep. Uh, but uh, not not so much on these. Yeah. Look at my porch. <laughs> you know. I... <laughs> uh, okay. 
this is a good. What made this the, the best-selling album that they've ever had? Why did it never? They never reach these heights again. Changed their sound and their absolute hatred of popularity. So they did it to themselves. They they, they probably could have been one of the best-selling bands ever had they not been disgusted with themselves. Yes, I mean, they have flat out said, uh, you know, they didn't like the way their album sounded. You know what I mean? Even though it's their heart, their best-selling one. Uh, Eddie Vedder went on a crusade to not have one more single released. Who does that? I mean, think about it. If you have an album out, what do you want to do? You want to sell albums. You want to sell <laughs> singles. And Eddie Vedder's saying... The producer's like, this is one of the best songs on the track. The band members are like, yeah, we knew we had something good. Eddie's like, yeah, if we could just stick it four, that'd be great. I don't need any more popularity. So um, he why, was just that kind of dude. Why I mean, are they not just going around playing in clubs instead of making albums then? Well, that was the thing is that uh, they actually ended up helping out uh, with, uh, you remember they were at Lollapalooza. Mm -hmm. uh, they helped out uh, Alice in Chains on one of their tours. Um, and so uh, they toured for something like 10 or 11 months straight. Like during the time that this album was actually becoming popular, it was released in ninety two or ninety one. It didn't really become popular until ninety two when it really started to mm -hmm. skyrocket. So during that time, uh, they're overseas and they're recording, uh, you know, mixing and then uh, touring. And so uh, actually, a lot of these singles weren't allowed in the United States for the first couple of years because they were from overseas. You had to buy like a really expensive. Uh, album just to be able to get them get the singles at least yeah i, I remember doing that too as a, as a kid um, yeah. so uh i think once you do that and um you know some of it could have been the backlash from the community like i said kurt, when kurt cobain comes out and calls you sellouts maybe you do your best to uh disprove that by yeah. you know warding on not warding off but uh let's say, uh, not necessarily accepting all the fame and not trying to go out of your way to be in the public eye all the time. Um, we have definitely discussed uh, at least one uh, person who enjoys being in the spotlight. So, uh, you know, not everybody's the same. Some people just want to make music, and I think that's what they wanted to do. They've had some bad things happen in their lives, just like everybody has. So some of the music is very, very personal to them. Maybe they didn't want to, you know, go out there and just kill it. Uh, I think uh, the exact quote was that, you know, when they were recording um, once, uh, they did it like 50 to 70 times, and they could not get it right. And they got it to the point where they hated each other so much they were singing it so many mm -hmm. times. Um, when all these other albums, you know, all songs on the album, rather, came a little bit easier and came a little bit more naturally, um, you know, then you go on the road and you're, you're playing the same songs plus some other songs that you've written that aren't as well known. Um, I think at some point the grind gets to you. You know, a lot of bands who are like that, who accept the fame but don't necessarily thrive in it. Sure. They take it with their main project. Sure. Like there's so many bands, like, like Green Day does that. And they, they'll go off and they'll form a side project so they can go out and get get back in touch with their true artistry. Oh, I know, and I, I agree with that. 100%. So why why don't they do that? So you know, the fans obviously wanted this type of music. 
I think they would, we would, people would still buy this in droves, much more than they buy whatever they have. However, I'm going to tell you this right now. Their rendition of uh, Last Kiss is one of my favorite remakes of all time. Oh, sure. Um, that song is spectacular. You know, they did the, uh, what's Dougal soundtrack? The singles. Yeah, they did that too. The yeah. soundtrack. So they, they were recording that at the same time too. Um, they've, just, they've just had some really, really fantastic songs come out since then. But I don't think they've been able to put a full album together since then, in my opinion. Not not it's, a complete album. It sounds to me like he doesn't he he won't try put his whole heart into it probably because he's afraid of what he'll reproduce. Well, they said that he does have a backwards way of kind of that's just the way Eddie does it, and apparently more people do it nowadays. And it's it's one of those things where they start writing chords, and Eddie listens to it, and he's writing the song in his head, and then they tweak it, you know, as they go along. A lot of times you have some lyrics, and then you got to write a song that goes with it. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so their their yeah. process, at least in my research, seemed to be a little bit more reversed. So, <clears throat> excuse me, given that uh, given that thing, um, I mean, it was even said during the recording, uh, you know, by the Eddie wasn't being, but like McCready was being interviewed, and he said basically, me and Eddie were just uh, along for for the ride. You know, this, I did read that. This yeah. was. Uh, Stone and almonds, you know, that's mm -hmm. this is kind of like their baby. Um, and if you think about it, uh, you know, the whole Temple of the Dog was a, a tribute to the guitarist, I mean, the vocalist that had killed themselves. So sometimes a muse can uh, put you in a certain frame of mind to make a certain type of music. And it was said that uh, uh, Amit was in a, a different, or, or rather, a, a, the other one, God, my brain just Stone. went, thank you, in a different place. And so his music changed from, uh, you know, the the first, the album Apple. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, that, that sound that they had um, kind of brought in um, with Mother Love Bone yes. got a lot darker and a lot grungier after that death. So possibly, I'm not 100% sure, but possibly this album is a result of, uh, you know, a, a hiatus in which they were dealing with a loss and then add in Eddie's particular penchants in this case for um, having deeper, deeper things to talk about than, you know, uh, drinking and uh, lewd women. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was total departure from... Uh hair metal this his his death was rough on him because it wasn't like he just od'd right he od'd and was alive and they carried him to the hospital it was like someone one like we would have taken care of because they took him in put him on a ventilator right and he was on the ventilator for days right before so, the doctor said hey he's brain dead right so the band members at the time the two ones that eventually came on and brought eddie and mccready and everybody in um, you know, they went through something very traumatic. So if, you know, if I was an artist of any kind whatsoever, I'm sure the loss of a friend would cause my particular art to take a different shift. Yeah. So possibly after the fame, touring, exhaustion, actually, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. maybe he got some of that out of his uh, system because again, some of the, the later albums aren't as quite as dark, um, and, uh, you know, they went on and had a couple of really, 
you know, not big hits, but radio singles that you've heard of. So yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, they did. And Daughter was pretty big. Uh yeah, Daughter was huge. Uh, Yellow Ledbetter, one of my oh, fa- yes, one of my favorite songs ever. Uh, period. Um, and then um, oh goodness, uh, there was another one. Uh, the one where they got in a car crash. A little bit more anthem rocky. Mm-hmm. Um, baby, something they got in a car crash. Let me oh, last kiss. Oh, the, the one redone. So. Uh, do you think this is their best album? Of the of the five or six that I have, um, I don't know how many side albums or whatever they have. Uh, yes, I, I believe that this is their best album. Uh, yeah, I've read that they're they're big about throwing out bootlegs of their own. Yes, they love that, and that's why I say some of the side stuff. Uh, they re-released this album twice, um, at least. I, I could be wrong. It could have been re-released more than that, but I, I know this album alone was released two different times. So, and one time the re-release even sold sixty thousand copies in a week. So, but that doesn't go against uh, re-releases. Don't go towards uh, Billboard. Um, yeah, they count that as a catalog. Uh, yeah, the catalog, and uh, that would have made it, uh, I think, number six or number eight for that week if at, at a re-release. So, again, very <laughs> popular album. Um, I think some of the best work. Um, and then after that, I'm not sure the sounds. Uh, they just they just sound different to me after that. Let's put it that way. I mean, it's a diamond album. It's it, there's a reason it's diamond. Yes. It's, you're, that's got to be your apex. Agreed, agreed. Unless you have multiple diamonds, which yeah, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know too many artists. That Van have, Halen. Yeah, that's the only one I can come off the top of my head. Uh, but I know there's probably a couple others. There's got to be. When we do research, we'll do research. But uh, very few bands have enjoyed the longevity that these guys have. Although, if you think about it, when is the last time you heard from them at all? Yeah, they're they're quiet. Um, and then if you think about it, at least like Chris Cornell, um, RIP, one of the best singers of all time, in my opinion, uh-huh, uh-huh. um, he joined Audio Slave, which was an awesome band they were. in and of itself. He had a couple of, uh, side projects or just solo songs. Um, he did a song for, uh, James Bond. Oh, wow. There you go. Um, so, you know, uh, Alice in Chains once uh, they went kaput, uh, and, you know, obviously, they couldn't go on. Uh, Wait, I thought they were trying to mount a comeback here recently. If they are, I, I just didn't hear about it. Um, and obviously, uh, you know... It'll never be the same. It'll, it'll never be the same, and then, obviously, Nirvana could never go forward, even though, you got to admit, uh, Dave Grohl being the drummer for one of the coolest bands of all time, and then turn around and being one of the rhythm guitar and singers for one of the coolest rock bands of all time in and of itself is pretty amazing but well, that, that's a different story for a different day well you brought him up he was in the news this past week he was girl yeah did you read about it Mm-mm, no sir uh well he's playing at the inauguration this week with foo fighters okay and also he uh said that he never plays the nirvana songs and does sings kurt songs because he just it's too sad for him well, I mean, yeah, he said, I but he can get back there and drum them with, uh, I forget the other two guys' names, uh, the, the bassist and then that, the other session guitar player, the, sure. the Foo Fighters, if there's somebody else singing them, because mm-hmm. to him, 
that seems almost right. It seems um, sure. more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I don't know. Uh, uh, cosmically like, correct. Yeah, there you go. Like they're paying a tribute. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now that, that's that's off topic, but that was in the news, and I felt it worthy to sp- speak of. So, uh, if this album, well, you just said, I was going to say, would it be as good if it was released today? You said they've re-released it two times, and it sold 60,000 copies in a week. Yeah, so, uh, and I think the, the one of the uh, digital re-releases with some of the extra songs, I think they were re- was, it, that one was released within the last five or six years, the last re-release of the album. Yeah, so that's the answer to that one. That was easy. That was the easiest one ever. Yep. Um, all right, now this is the last question. And I think it's it it holds a little value in my opinion, especially with the way that they've uh, treated this album themselves. Sure. Okay. Do you think shopping for a uh, a better or perhaps a more seasoned, well-known producer would have uh, improved the album not only in its sound for the fans, but perhaps just just for them? Um, possibly, but you are talking about a producer who had worked with some of the biggest names in the business. Let's see if we can pull this up. So, uh, Parashner had worked with Temple of the Dog, Alice in Chains, Blind Melon, Dinosaur Jr. Uh, he went on to work with Nickelback, Melissa Etheridge, and Bon Jovi. Um, you know, he put his, uh, you know, he even helped out with the music. Um, it was the mixing that they weren't as happy about. Um, they did that in London. In London. Uh, so it was the mixing that they weren't as happy about uh, versus uh, the producing. The producing, huh? But uh, that's, that's one of the, again, that's why it's been remixed and re-released. Because uh, constantly through the research, uh, they said the reverb on the guitar was too much, and this was that, and this was that, so... Well, before he produced this album, he had produced two other albums. One in 1989 called Forced Entries, the band. The album is called Uncertain Future. And then the only album that anyone has ever heard of, Temple of the Dog, Temple of the Dog. Yep. And then he did Pearl Jam 10. Right. Okay. So, so he was t- kind of contemporarily working with Eddie Vedder yeah. and Stone. He was starting to get his legs under him with right. that Temple of the Dog because that's just a great album. That is a fantastic now, album. Who mixed this album? I don't know, and I cannot find it looking through oh, the um, stuff right here. Yeah, give me a second. Um, it was done in June in England under Tim Palmer. I, I, okay, I, I look at producers. I don't look at mixers. Uh, maybe I need to start doing that. Yeah, June, and again, all my research, when, when they talk about Tim Palmer... Um, when you're talking about, is it uh, just like... You, don't it like, like the mixing. Is it like the guy that sings the... The old eighty songs, Palmer. Oh no, uh, that's Robert. And yeah, uh, there he is. But no. Tim Palmer. Uh, but the British record producer. Okay. And uh, they said it sounded too to them. It sounded too produced. Well, yeah. he's uh, he's done a lot. He does. He was a Robert Plant producer. He's yep. done Aussies, Tears for Fears, Zach Wild. Uh, okay, I'm going to say my part is no. Because I don't think anything is going to make them happy about this album unless they go back in with the same songs and re-record it the way they want it to sound. Right, and even they said, they again, when you play one song 50, 70 times trying to get it right, 
that uh, all right. That, Let me rephrase. That level of perfectionism is appreciated, but it can also drive you insane. Oh my gosh! This Palmer guy at twenty one had his first, had a number one single. I just died in your arms tonight. Yeah. So. No, okay, no, they're going to have to not, they're going to have to re rewrite the songs, period. They need to write new music if they uh, want it to sound the way they want it to because this is not how they wanted it to sound. Well, he, he was, you know, he was a polisher. He, I mean, think about Your Arms Tonight. And, I mean, you know, for those of us old enough to remember that song. That's a good song. That's a it's great song. It's not a bad song, song. But it is very produced. You know what it I mean? Is. Like it's, I mean, look, this got a great video. Got a great video and the whole number. But you got to think of the era, too. So. Right. So I think that fits in with the, like, the Jeremy song um you know you're, very, you're, that's very a, clean you, you very, just nailed it on the head this is a polished album to the nth degree so and that takes away from some of the edginess or the grunginess of it they wanted to be dirty and they got polished so i think that that's part of i think some of the detractors uh but uh again you know i'm a music fan so uh, this is still going to be and always will be one of my favorite albums. There's nothing wrong with this album. I think it's just them being nitpicky. Agreed. Uh, but, you know, uh, artists tend to be nitpicky about themselves more than other people. If so. this episode goes diamond, you're never going to... <laughs> yeah. You're not going to hear me bitch and moan. Yeah. I will be thankful and I will drink a glass of champagne with whoever comes to my house to drink it with me. Yes, right. And I'll give you a hug. And I will never go back in tug. time and say, gosh, I wish I had done things differently. There's going to be no re-recording, no re-release. I don't care about the reverb. Uh, yeah. So, no. I'm with you on that one 100%. So, my friend, what is your final thought? Um, this one happened to be one of those albums that, uh, was in my high school years. Um, it was on constant, uh, you know, I was a cool kid. I had the multi-disc player in my car. Whoa! Oh, yeah, man. So, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, with the four. I mean, honestly, it, I did listen to those four bands a lot. Um, so, uh, they were constantly on rotation along with some form of heavy metal and or rap. Um, so... This will always be a good memory for me because of the time frame in which I heard it and got to know it. Um, and again, the first six or seven songs, I mean, you know, like, like I said, if, if the, the, back then tapes were coming out. So yeah, the A side of the tape is awesome, mm -hmm, <laughs> you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. And I happen to like some of the B sides. So my, my takeaway from this is one of the best songs, uh, you know, that like a kind of a hard rock song is on this album. So if you are unfamiliar with it, uh, there's several songs that are fantastic. But if you haven't heard Jeremy, then uh, you need to go, or Black actually, you need to go back and, and listen and give those a try because of the commercial success of those two things, the Grammy nominations and the fact that uh, it was you know, actively tried not to be put out and it still went. Yeah, it was a Grammy nominated album, but it didn't win. No. Which is kind of surprising actually. No, it's uh, it won it, the American uh, Music Award. We didn't say that, but it right. did, which is also very, very impressive. Yes. So that's my final impression. Um, well, mine is it was a, it was a good album for me to finally listen to for the first time all the way through, being uh, about forty years old uh, after <laughs> after having heard uh, many of the songs, uh, but not all of them in a row. Sure. It was not a bad album. I'm kind of glad you picked it. Yay! It was good. Yeah. So, uh, that's a wrap on 10. 
So let's uh, I mean, let me give you our uh, our dates on our emails and stuff. You can con- get in contact with the music that made us podcast at our email, the music that made us at gmail.com. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash Ben Davis and Carthy. We're also on Instagram at the music that made us. And you can get us on Twitter at the music that MA2. Just go on there and look for the one that's sharing stuff about music, the good music. <laughs> you can also see our little logo up in the top corner to know it's us. And uh, for Ben Davis and Carthy. Nice little uh, Sunvolt quote to go here. May the wind carry your troubles away. Have a good day.